Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And I said, there's a young man at the table, and I said, get smart. He goes, isn't that a movie? <laughs> basis of this conversation that we're going to have today is about the idea of scale in television because, oh, because for years, scale has always been the preeminent thing in TV. If you ever look at a chart of CPMs and you look at ratings versus CPMs, it's an exponential chart. And, and what that means is it, it's, it's actually very important. What it means is that people pay more per person on large shows than they do on small shows. And that seems anathema to our sense of modern day audience targeting or things like that, that why should we pay more just because somebody is in the audience for a very large show? And, and that may, maybe that's irrational or maybe it's not. And I think by the end of this conversation, you may get a sense of whether that's a good idea or not. And I, and I sort of, um, I don't know if everyone read the little preamble that Tracy tortured me into putting together, but, but the, the idea is why does size matter in television and, and in the future is it going to continue to matter? And we have a terrific group of panelists. As I was telling them, Tracy always says, well, well who do you want on your panel? I say, as long as they're, as long as they're smart and articulate and, and I think we've got a terrific group here. So all the way down at the end is Colin Dixon. Uh, if you don't read his stuff, it, you're making a mistake. He's, he's about the, the best you can read about the media and TV industry and, and really good stuff. And, and anyone knows me, I don't give away compliments easily, so, so I mean it. Um, we have Ann Schell, um, who herds the cats at Pearl TV. Am I not getting you in trouble by saying that? No. <laughs> Ann has to keep like people who hate each other working together, which is always a... Um, <laughs> It's kind of like canoe in the beginning, right, for people who <laughs> don't remind me. <laughs> um, Ethan Drylinger, did I get that? Ethan Drylinger, who's, who's from IBM Watson Media. I, you know, IBM is making a very big deal about the applications of artificial intelligence in a number of different areas. There are seats up front. Come, come join us. Um, and, and he's part of that group. Um, we have Ryan, Ryan Reed from Lodomy. Yes, you pronounce that right. Okay. <laughs> Low Tammy. I thought it's like an American Indian name, right? <laughs> um, and, and, and you're fighting the fight of data, right? Of the, the relevancy of data and, and which data and how to make it accessible for a lot of the applications that people want. And, and my acquaintance, Sharita Williams, who's the president of Video, who's uh, 
bringing ideas of automation and intelligence and things like that into the selling of into selling media. So a terrific group of people, and I'm going to ask them really hard questions today. So if I can figure out how to get the clicker to work. Oh. The, the, this is a, for anyone who's ever watched The Man from All Seasons, there's a great scene when Richie Rich sells out um, our protagonist and, and he sells him out for, to be a lord of Wales. And, and he says, it profit a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world but for Wales. And, and that's kind of my, um, my sense, like, if you're going to sell your soul, you might as well sell it for something big, right? Not something, not something little. So the first, the first thing I want to talk about was a really interesting experiment that was done at Columbia University a few years ago. And, and what they did was they were asking a question about nature versus nurture. They were asking the question, if you can advance the slide, they were asking uh, one more. Okay, uh, sorry. They're asking a question about, do, will people's tastes change if they're aware of other people, what they like or not aware? So imagine, you know, if you go to Amazon, you look at what other people read or you talk to people and things like that, what would the bestseller list look like if you didn't have that knowledge? What, what would music charts look like if you didn't know what other people were watching, if you didn't have bestseller lists, if you didn't have IMDb, if you didn't have Rotten Tomatoes, if you didn't have access to all of this information, is, is our choice of what's popular inherent about the content itself? Or is our choice of what's popular um, inherent in the, the nature of our interactions with each other? So they did an experiment, a guy named Duncan Watts, and they had two groups, and one group had access to every, what everyone else did, and the other group didn't. And they, they looked at what, what was popular and what wasn't. So I'm going to start, Sharita, with you. So what do you think the differences between those two groups were? What would you speculate the differences are? And you can cheat by looking at the graph there, but... <laughs> oh, I, I wasn't looking at the graph. I'm, I'm just going to answer what I think. So I, I would think the people who didn't have the benefit of knowing what others thought had a more sort of spread out curve of what they liked and it was smart and articulate. It's based on their kind of inherently what felt good to them and then the folks that came after that I'm sure they were heavily influenced by what others had thought as we all are. And so the, <laughs> there's this nice picture here you can see the, the the rich purple is is exactly that it's the people who have access to other people where you get you get this sort of Pareto distribution some very popular content but when you don't have access to that information you get much flatter content. So, so Colin, what, what do you think that means for, for prediction of the future if, if our social circumstances determines popularity and all of the new ways that we learn about what other people go? How does that change the, the nature of what we think are hits or not hits and things like that? Well, I think... Um, when you, when you look at how influential social media has become in driving taste, um, I, I think what you're going to... Well, what we are seeing is that you can sometimes turn 
something that ordinarily wouldn't have been popular into a popular show. Um, and I think actually the, the broadcasters are beginning to really uh, tap into this already. Um, not necessarily to make an unpopular show popular, but to extend the popularity of an already popular show. Um, and, and, and actually it's led to a, change in, a complete change in attitude of broadcasters to how they leverage social media. Yeah, I, I look, it's and it's to me. I make the the subtle distinction. It's not social media. It's it's the people on social media, right? It's not that it's not that social media is making it. It's the people who inhabit social media and the the influencers. And so I want to pick up on exactly what you said and ask Ryan. So are we using all the are we using the wrong data? I mean, is LinkedIn and Facebook and who you call, you know, what the NSA watches about all of us? <laughs> Is that more important data than you know demographic or you know what websites we go? You know we're focused on all this consumption behavior, but what what this graph says is that what other people are doing seems to be more important. Yeah, it definitely does, and I think it, it kind of explains your first thing is why do the CPMs go up as the price as the number of viewers go up? There's a value in knowing other people are watching it too. Um, so it's it's. Someone put up, like, why, why if I watch a late-night movie, are my eyeballs worth less than when I'm watching America's Got Talent? It's because there's a validation in knowing whatever, 10 million people or however many are watching that show. There's other people who are going to know about it. They saw the same ad. So there's a multiplier effect to that. So there's social validation in knowing other people are watching this. And to the social media side, uh, it allows... Let, let, let's, you said an interesting thing, social validation. What do, what do you mean by that? Social validation. If I think I'm the only one interested in something, uh, I'm less likely to express that or for other people to see value, value in that. Uh, the thing that social media is doing is kind of democratizing what that means. Like, There's almost no one out there who says, I'm the only one interested in XYZ. You go on Twitter and just type it in and you find out how many people are into whatever weird thing you thought you were the only one that was into. Um, so the... The, the CPM example is just a broad stroke. I know a lot of other people are watching this, so my eyeballs are worth more because there's that social validation of it. But with more data and knowing how people are interconnected and related, um, it, that way they are using the wrong data. Now, these are behind walled gardens, but if you knew how that, that niche connection to other people was, and I value this this content or this advertising because I know other people see it. Uh, once you have that data, it, it's not just a pure scale thing, it's a quality. So, so, so Ethan, I'm gonna throw something at you. It would seem if you follow Ryan's train of thought that sites like Hulu and Amazon and Netflix have an inherent advantage over the TV ecosystem because the TV ecosystem doesn't, the ecosystem itself doesn't take sides and say, these are the things that you should watch. But if you're Hulu or Amazon, you can manipulate that social interest to boost the hits that you want and to you know, decimate the things that you don't want. I'm not sure there's a comparison between broadcast television today and the Hulu's Netflix of the world. Broadcast television today is still a one-to-many operation. Um, it's still a tune-in moment where I want to go watch the Stanley Cup Finals. I want to go watch the 
Belmont Stakes. I know it's going to start at 629, and that's when I need to be in front of my television to watch that event in real time. The value to the advertiser is knowing there are a lot of people who want to watch the Belmont Stakes. Probably not as much with the Stanley Cup Finals, although if anyone did watch it, it was a great game. However, um, there's value to, in that in advertising. When you get into that other ecosystem, the Netflix and Hulus of the world, it's one-to-one. You know what I want to watch. You know what people like me want to watch. You're able to gather pieces of breadcrumbs um, from that trail and understand that. Um, you know, looking at this but, graph... But, you know, it, it, we just heard all of this that what people want to watch is because of what other people want to watch, right? It's a kind of... right. The, you, you know only because those other people want to watch it. Like, you're, you can't have both thoughts at the same time. Broadcast is a prediction of what people want to watch. Netflix and Hulu is a measurement of what people watch. I, I take issue with that a little bit. because Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. They both measure and react to what people watch. And broadcasters don't do it in real time. And they don't have the level of granularity in terms of data to know, you know, all the things about you when you were watching it. But we certainly, like, rely on ratings and surveys and lots of things to tell us why a show is popular and with whom and produce more content or less based on that. So, and, and if you just think about water cooler talk, I mean, the shows that people have talked about around the water cooler for years are the shows that are, are popular on the broadcast side. Hold that so. thought, because we're so going to get ABC. In, we're going to get into water cooler. I want to okay. give Anne, Anne one <laughs> shot, and then we're going to go, because we'll, we'll get into that. So, so Watts, at the end of his paper, and, and he also wrote a book about this, says... He, he sort of say, he gives this example of Harry Potter. Nobody thought it was, it was rejected eight times. Says we can't really do a good job, therefore, of predicting who's going to what things are going to be popular. Therefore, his answer is increase the number of bets and decrease the size, meaning more shows. Don't put all your money into one big thing. Does that make sense? Um, you know, I, you know, I, I, I'm not on that side of the business, so that's a hard thing, hard thing for me to answer. I, I do think that, you know, um, what, what you're talking a lot about is how humans interact with one another, right? Um, and the some of the comments being made about social platforms, and they're they're all running on al algorithms where they're recommending, or you're, you know, basically you're having experience with just your own world, your own you loop. You're not seeing what other people see. You're only seeing what they think you want to see in your universe. Um, so I, I, I think that, you know, it's part of, it could, we, we all want to be part of a tribe, right? It gives us comfort. Um, 
I, I think you know what's interesting about broadcast television is it's always it's been something that we've been used to and viewing for a long time, and it, it's something that people talk about. Back to what Sharita said, so I mean I think it's hard to know. I don't think it's either or. I don't think you can say it's one or the other, right? Um, I think both bring value in terms of the, the broad reach, uh, allows shows to get known. Um, then you have the cooler, the, the water cooler talk, so people talk about it, social media amplifies that, and sort of have this loop. Um, but I just want, I was just gonna read one thing, because you said, um, you know, in terms of popularity of shows, and I always like to use this, uh, Example because it just it just points out things that you think you, you never would think this particular show is as popular as it is. So, Judge Judy has more audience in minutes, more people watching ads in just 30 minutes than all of the people watching all of the videos on YouTube all day. I mean that's pretty powerful. And that's why she's paid 38 million dollars a year. Precisely, by the way. precisely. And, and that says but, a lot about human nature too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, but I'm, let me make let me say one other because this is another that goes back to social media and these are from TVB and I, um, so time uh, needed to generate uh, 81 million unduplicated viewers so in broadcast television that takes 546 programs six networks one day and that's Nielsen rated 62nd in social media that's 10.2 billion videos 90 platforms. 31 days, and that's a three-second count. So yeah. I think that's powerful when you when you think about it in that context. So, I, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pick up on the the question I asked you, which is, do I want to increase the number of vets or and, and decrease the size? There there's a, a fantastic book that I I recommend um, called Blockbusters, and and a, and a Harvard Business School professor asked the question, which is. Why is Hollywood mo making all these Marvel superhero movies and and you know s Star Trek spinoffs and and Star Wars and not movies like Chinatown anymore? And and she said, you know, like, isn't it irrational? Why do they make a lot of small good movies? And she did a lot of research at at it. And and I'm sort of summarize the whole book in one thing. What she found out was that that the rate of selecting hits, whether it was small or big, was about the same. But the, the return on a hit was about 6x the return on a mid-size movie. And the, and the same, thing, same thing is true in the music business also. Hits are, have much greater return because the nature of those hits means that they take advantage of all the things that you were talking about, these, these social aspects that allow us to share what we're doing, whether it's talk about on the water cooler, feel like, we're social because we've seen the same sort of things. 10% um, and, and Alan Horn, by the way, was the architect of this whole hit movie. He was the head of the studio at Warner Brothers and then at Disney. And it, during the time he was at Warner Brothers, about 10% of the films were about 33% of the costs and about 40% of the revenues. And that's a Pareto distribution, right? Which is what we saw on that nature versus nurture. So I have a bunch of questions for you. And I'm going to start with Ethan to pick up on what we were. Um, she writes that much of that, that blockbusters, unlike Watts, are a function of enormous production budgets, right? In the movie business, there's this weird thing, which is you spend the same amount of money on a movie, whether it's a 
whether the movie costs $200 million to make or $10 million to make. But, the, but there's enormous distinction between the reproduction cost and the production cost. And so hits are, are a function of production and research and marketing all at scale. And the idea that hits aren't an accident, they're made. And, they're, and, and the, an important thing is betting on a big thing is a better use of capital. And so is that a function, do you think, of the sort of physical world that we have? Do you, th you, know, do you think that now that all changes? Or do you think that's, is that because we have to go to theaters and all of that, or is in a world of zero distribution costs, that's gonna change? I think that's in process of changing now. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that so much of what we measure from an audience perspective goes beyond that original use case. So when we think about broadcast, we're not just looking at the overnight Nielsen ratings any longer, but you have to think about C3, you have to think about D4, you have to think about the long tail of that. And all of that becomes part of that franchise and what that franchise can do. Um, when you look at movies, there are probably some use cases out there where you know it's an accidental hit, where someone just happens to have some pot of gold sitting in a, in a can, and you know they create a hit movie out of it. But hit movies are made because it's a good script, a decent story, has a good market, has solid marketing behind it, and they are able to target that audience in a way that makes sense to that audience to create social buzz around it to make other people want to go to the movie or to watch a television show, or to download a song, or whatever it is. So it's really about expanding the ecosystem, and I think that part of the marketing engine is already in flight today, so it's no longer that single-threaded use case of, if you're gonna have a hit movie, we have to count dollars at the box office, because hit movies are made at box office, plus what you get from VOD, plus what you get from DVD sales, plus what you get from aftermarket DVD sales, plus what you get from merchandise, and plus what you get from the next movie that comes out in that series. And that's part of what that franchise is, and that's where the model goes. And all of the pieces, the data elements, the social elements, and the actual movie itself come together but to is, work that is, way. To, to get back to the, is the idea of a hit, is that still a relevant thing? I mean, that, that's kind of, in other words, she's making a very particular point, which is that hits drive the business, not nice, great art, art films. And, and so, so uh, you know, I, I feel like we're, we're sort of missing a piece of the puzzle when we talk about hits, whether you produce a lot of smaller stuff or a small amount of bigger stuff. Um, if you look at, like, a movie, the way a movie is rated... The, its success factor is by how big it is with the audience because it, it, it is released through a limited channel, right? A limited channel of there's theatres. Got, it's got to be big to get people out to the theatre. Um, and it's somewhat the same with the television channel, right? You need somebody to tune in. This is a limited resource, so you put your best stuff in, in the prime, prime time, etc. And, and hits are really important in that when you have a limited bandwidth because you are asking the consumer to the viewer to come to do something specific but it is not the same not quite the same when you're talking about an unlimited situation like Netflix right now hits obviously have a role in recruiting new subscribers but not so much in retaining them here you can make lots of smaller bets 
And people will come because they'll find something, they know they'll find something new and interesting to watch. So, so I, I guess I'll ask maybe Anne, I'm going to throw well, one thing to you. But then, if you look at the music industry, the, the, all the money is made with the hits. And 93, 93% of all the economics go, and the, the smaller artists make absolutely nothing. The, the same is true in television right. advertising, yeah. by the way. Yeah, it's exactly. And, and, and we just saw Amazon uh, get the rights to uh, uh, Premier, Premier League. Premier, Premier League. So that's not, you know. But that's a bet. Right? Amazon's yeah. making a bet that people well, are going to want to watch. It's an informed bet. It's right? an yeah. informed bet, but it's still a bet. Yeah, I was talking with, uh, I was having dinner with a friend who works at Google, and uh, the big difference with, uh, what do we call them, Fang or whatever that group of companies is, uh, out here versus our traditional media companies is traditional media companies put out a product, put out content, and say, I'm going to invest X amount of money in content, and I'm going to see a return, whether it's a movie with box office sales or advertising with television, that is going to generate a profit for my investment. Uh, the FANG companies have largely large profit centers outside of the media industry that can fund any amount of content that they, they want to throw. So they are not, you know, making content with the idea that it's going to have an ROI. They are just taking this cash flow from other businesses. And, and that's the economic model that's changed, and, changed and, what we're doing and, a lot more than anything else. And, and that's actually one of the questions that I had follow up, which is when you have these platforms that are emerging where the... the can you hold it? Sorry. Oh, sorry. Where the... Where the content is no longer the end game, but it's just part of a, a means, do you think that's going to, uh, Sharita, I'll ask you, do you think that's going to change the nature? In other words, does Amazon really care about the Premier League, or they just care that there's going to be 10 million more Prime users, and that's 99 or $139 a year, and so whatever it takes to feed that monster, they'll feed? Yeah, I, I, I think ultimately hits do matter, and I, I think that there's this value in shared experiences, and I think the companies that um, have recorded many, many years of data around the effect they get when they participate in a shared experience, content experience, versus one that's very individualized and on demand, they see the difference. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In return, they get from the shared experience versus the individual one. And I think that it basically comes down to there's a larger halo effect, a larger payoff in terms of word of mouth and people sharing that something is good when it's part of these big hit events. And so I think it still does matter. Even so, in the on-demand, completely disaggregated uh, content world, I think it matters. So, so is a flatter world worse for advertisers? I think it is. And, and I think a lot of these companies that are moving towards a model that's more you know, spread out they don't rely on advertising as much. So they have lots of other ways to, to get at the money. But I think in terms of new companies launching and trying to make themselves known to relevant consumers, it is a very good thing to be able to have that halo effect that I'm talking about. Yeah. Seth, that, that Amazon deal is actually really interesting because the Premier League rights that Amazon bought 
no broadcaster really wanted. And here's why. They bought the rights to 20 games, not that great games, but they bought them in tranche, two tranches of 10 games each in very de defined periods. One tranche is, in the, um, is right at the beginning of December, which is a weird time in, in, in Premier League soccer. Not, you know, nothing's really decided. There's no big leaders decided yet. Why did this work for Amazon? They have an exclusive right. The only way you can watch that content is on Amazon in the UK. And that is right at the beginning of December. What better time to introduce somebody to free shipping on Amazon? This was, it was a brilliant deal. And, and it really worked. And if you look at the Grand Tour, right. the Grand Tour, it cost 250 million. It was a bargain for Amazon. They picked up 1.5 million subscribers to Prime. Prime members spend twice as much than, than, than average. And actually, if you look at that 1.5 million, half of their subscription paid for the first season of Grand Tour. Done. This was a great deal. So they're exploiting hits, guaranteed hits, and, and they're using it to fund other, other to, to drive other business models. So um, we're going to switch now to, to look at a, at a slightly different view of the same, the same thing. There, there was a, a fascinating book came out, I think it was in 2017, called Scale. And I'm going to put up these charts. I apologize, they're hard to read. Scale is, scale is written by a, um, I'll, I'll describe them because I know they're a little bit hard. It's written by a, a theoretical physicist at a place called the Santa Fe Institute, which um, is, is just a wonderful place that talks about how different fields come together. The first is, a, is a, a chart that actually dates back to the beginning of the 20th century called Kleiber's Law. And it was an observation that the mass of an animal is directly proportional to the metabolism or the heart rate of the animal. So you have small animals, fast heart rate, fast metabolism, they don't live very long, big animals, slow metabolism, slow heart rate. And, and you can see that it fits beautifully, right? It's, it's a, and and what, what West explains is it's in the inherent nature of the physical idea of how we're constructed that determines that. In other words, you can't have a really big hummingbird because it would fall on itself. It's not strong enough. And, and its heart would have to beat too many times and all of those things like that. By the way, the one outlier in this chart are human beings because we now live much longer than we normally would have lived. And so if you actually see a human beings live, you know, metabolism and, and life is sort of directly proportional, live much longer. So they did the same thing. They said, are the same laws exist for cities and societies and things like that? So this chart here is a chart of, uh, th these are US metropolitan areas, and it's the size, it's a log size of the city by a number of different averages. And again, you see things like patent, income, GDP, and crime. And so if it's a log average, what that means is that, that New York City has not only more patents than Los Angeles, because New York City, I think, is three times larger than Los Angeles, it actually has about three and a half times more patents. Meaning the larger that you get, you, that brings along certain things, it brings along a greater GDP. So yes, there, Greenwich, Connecticut has higher GDP, but by and large, the larger the city you have, super linearly, the larger the income that you have. 
and it says something about the nature of people and how they're organized, right? It says that there's something about bringing a lot of people together that makes them more industrious, whether it's for robbing each other or for de developing intellectual property. It makes them make more money. Um, it grows the GDP and things like that. And it's a, it's a, so it's a function of human nature and it's a function of our organizational systems. And I thought this was an interesting thing to apply to ask those sort of same questions about television. You know, that, you know, one of the things that he talks about is, so why are bigger things more efficient? Because the pathways can become more efficient. Bigger cities don't need as many gas stations. They don't need as many roads per person because they're denser. And the, the greater the density of those networks, the more efficient they are. That's why subways work in New York City very well, but they, they, they wouldn't work in, in Des Moines or something like that, on a relative sense, on a relative sense. So, so some, questions, some questions I have about this. So um, in, in, in Jeffrey West's world, bigger is more efficient. Whales are more efficient than hummingbirds, right? Their heart doesn't have to beat as many times per second. Big cities are more efficient than little cities. And I think this is what Sharita was talking about, which is that big shows, as we know, are more efficient than small shows. And, and you know, do you think that's something that's a, that people understand still? In other words, when I, when I started in the advertising business, everyone said to open a movie or to open a store or things like that, you have to nail everything in a short period of time. And the only way you can do that is on very big shows. It's, by the way, why Thursday football was moved to Thursday night. Because when Thursday night fell apart, they couldn't open movies anymore. So they said, let's move football to Thursday night so we can open movies. Is, is that, do you see that in the, the thinking that people have when they think about TV? Do they, does scale still matter? When you're thinking about how to get deployment across all sorts of different networks, how important is the ubiquity of television and that scale? I, well, let me speak to that. So, so that, that was what, that was yes, question three. <laughs> Maybe the um, question was too long. Well, yes, yeah, so broadcast today is very ubiquitous um, in terms of you know I represent eight of the larger broadcast station groups. Uh, so we're we're the local affiliate. So we carry the national news networks, right? We're the are the national networks as our as our uh, network content. That's bringing both the local content with the national content to markets uh, where we compete against one another in those markets, which changing, and you brought up this, this uh, you, you made the statement that I'm herding cats and we're fighting with one another. We're actually not fighting with one another. We're actually fighting the digital platforms. Um, but you know, you, can, you, you know you can get TV content anywhere, right? Uh, and and there's, there's a lot of power in that. The broadcast, and, and you mentioned it, the ability of one to many. Uh, the economics there are huge. Uh, to deliver uh, a bit in broadcast versus a bit in uh, 5G or 4G is magnitudes less expensive. So there's huge value in broadcast. Um, and so I don't see that going away. How that, how that works in terms of the long tail, long tail content, we've been working on a new platform, ATSC 3.0, that is hybrid. And it, that's why I'm saying it's neither. You have to, I think you have to bring the two together because there's huge desire for local. Why do we have all these microbreweries and these local things happening where you want to have the, the whiskey that's made you know, in that market from whatever? Because people are snobs. What? Yes. 
But I, I think there's, there's, the lo there's the local piece and the national piece right. and putting those together. So ATSC 3.0 is the, is attempt to, to hybridize what's happening right. on OTT with what's happening on broadcast and bring those together. Sharita, let me ask you a question on, on this topic, which is, so I understand conceptually why big shows are better, but why is it better for the advertisers to advertise in them? Why do they spend that much more, more money? Like it's one thing to say everyone's talking about a football game, but, but. I, th I think there's less risk. Like my, I have no data to support this, <laughs> but my theory is that there's less risk. I think if you fish in a pool where you know there's a ton of fish, your likelihood of drawing something in good is higher than fishing in a lot of different smaller pools with a fewer fish in each of them. There's just less effort. They're, the fish are more likely to tell each other. Like there's lots of different good things that happen in my little analogy, but I, no, I, I fundamentally think, think actually, it's less I think risk. I think there's, it's the reason the politicians go there when they have a one day sale, right? Like you're not gonna take the chance of spreading out all of these tiny messages across all these different impressions. You're gonna go to where there's a massive pool and hit them with as many of those messages as you can. And, and Ethan, Kill my, the fish in the barrel. My guess is you would say <laughs> that there's an inherent inefficiency in that, that platforms like Amazon and Netflix are, do a good job of of taking advantage of that inefficiency. They absolutely do. They, that's How did what I know that's that? what they're built upon is that inefficiency because again, that's that one to one and it's when you take let's like do a quick scan around the room before I insult everybody in the room. Um, my kids are 15 and 17 years old. They watch almost zero broadcast television. Not even events, a Super Bowl or something like that. If I have it on, they'll watch it but they will not stop what they're doing to tune into anything. They miss nothing because everything is available to them after broadcast at some other point in time or in conjunction with broadcast. Leveling the playing field and putting eyeballs in front of content is what we need to be thinking about in order to progress the industry forward and to become what our kids are looking for as for entertainment, for news, for information, for interaction. It's, that is what the playing field is. So when you talk about seminal moments in broadcast, a hit show, um, a specific event like the Super Bowl or the Belmont Stakes, you're talking about subscription moments where you have to go make an appointment and get to something to do it versus picking up my phone and just watching it because I'm standing in line and I've got 20 minutes to kill. So there's a, there's a, a terrific book called How Brands Grow. I don't know if anyone's read it. If you're in the advertising business, you should read it, and, and it talks about something called the NBD, which is a curve that exists in almost all advertising that says the, the, larger, the, the larger your percentage of the market share, the more loyal your audience is. It's, it's, and there's one exception to that, and the exception to that are house brands. So the, the house brand of Walmart and the house brand of Costco have a greater degree of loyalty despite not having that overall market share. And so I, I was wondering, Colin, do you think there's an analogy to the, the house brands of the shows that Amazon produces and Netflix that are kind of like those, you know, what, what's the Walmart house brand, Kirkland or, or things like that? You know, is there, do you think it fits in that, that, that model as a... I think it absolutely does. Since that was my, my great idea of the morning. Well, <laughs> and it's a good one. <laughs> Um, no, I think it absolutely fits in that model. Uh, one of the things, as, as, as you were talking about this size and scale um, and the big hits and, and whatnot, I, I was thinking that there is tremendous value in some brands like Netflix and Amazon um, because 
in a way, they're the hit, right? Because you know that going to this service, you're going to find something great to watch. And that's why I think the, the, the hits in their services are much... They're still important in attracting new subscribers, but they're much less important. And it's the brand that people are, t are attached to. And they're peripherally attached to a show that is showing on that, that channel, that, that, uh, in that app, for a period of time. And as long as that flow is maintained, well, you're good to go, right? Um, I'm also I'm fascinated by this curve. I'd never I'd never really thought about this, but of course it, this is absolutely true. But this is for organisms. If you look at the if you look at companies, they evolve along this curve, right? It's, it's exactly there's a uh, we could spend an hour talking about this. But he, if you read the book, he he talks about how cities last forever and companies expire because of some of the very dynamics of how they fit on this. The, the, the conversation, I don't know if people sat in on the conversation I had with Tosca Mask from Passion Flicks. This is a young company. This is a company whose heart is beating like crazy right now because they're building their service and they're very small and they're, you know, they've got their quids in. This is life or death for them. But the evolutionary curve of a service like that is to build audience and then to expand their footprint in that audience and that heartbeat slows. <laughs> yeah. So most companies have what they call a sigmoidal shape, right? They go fast and then they go slow. Um, or as somebody once said, how you lost your money first slowly and then quickly. <laughs> so Ryan, one of the things I liked about this book is, and, and he has a, he has a uh, quote in it, uh, Jeffrey West, he said, data for data's sake, or the mindless gathering of big data without a conceptual framework for organizing and understanding it may actually be bad or dangerous. Meaning, West, for better or for worse, has a concept of what governs these things. They're mathematical processes as opposed to what so many of us do now is we throw data into a computer and we look for patterns and we overfit things. Does that ring, does that ring true? Well, data is like cells. They're, they're there and it's not that gathering more cells will, will, be, will build you a bigger organism. It's the shape that it takes. And with data in the ad tech world, it's always been about incentives. Uh, so if you have a CPM incentive, for example, and you're charging a dollar to reach an auto intender, the incentive becomes, I need to include more people because everyone I say is an auto intender. Uh, but that, that paradigm is shifting because people are starting to wise up. It's like, how do you qualify that? And quality is becoming an issue. So. You're going to need data science to actually sift through this stuff and figure out because the but you have to have a hypothesis, right? You can't just the hypothesis is I always uh, I've I've said this before, uh, but imagine you start with a world of perfect information. So if you're an advertiser, you have perfect information of the exact right ad to show the exact right person in the exact right context. So you know exactly what mood they're in, what the weather's like, what shows they were watching, and everything else. Uh, imagine that that was perfectly efficient for buyer and seller, and then take our, take our step back. Uh, where are we? We're like, conceptually eons away from, from something like that. Now we're just throwing a bunch of data out there, and then the incentives are, I want you to use my data, so I'm going to present it as the greatest thing ever. Or 
uh, qualify people for, for audiences so that you'll target them. So the data in itself is, is just ones and zeros. The incentives kind of uh, make things blur the hypothesis. Blur the hypothesis. Yeah. Exactly. All right. I'm going to rush because we have eight minutes to go and we have one more topic area. And I think this is a great summary of a lot of the things that I've heard people saying. So there's, a, again, a wonderful book called Connections. And, and the idea behind connections is how information is transmitted through social networks. Everyone's heard of six degrees of separation. What, what the idea behind this work that James Fowler and, and, and Nicholas Christakis said is that information is transmitted three deep. In other words, and then it starts to sort of decay. It's from our friends to our friends to our friends' friends. And then after that, it doesn't go. But influence works that way, and one of the things that they show very interestingly is that a lot of things like obesity is not just a genetic predisposition, it's an it's a epidemiological factor that transmits through our, um, through our social networks. And, and one of the things that allows our social networks to construct is this idea called homophily, that we like things that are like us. We like people who are genetically similar, not external phenotypes, but people who like the same things. And it's, so it's, it's been my feeling that taste in television is a fulcrum of homophily. It's a really quick way to say, oh, you like that? Remember you were talking about water coolers. That water cooler discussion that sounds so banal is actually, I think, a very sophisticated testing of what do we have in common? And, and, and I think that it's a really important part to understand that role that television makes in our lives, that video makes, that content makes, because it allows us to know who we're connected to in ways that we didn't see, and it's the oversized influence of a brand or a, a piece of content. And so, 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 you know, one of the things that I, I, I was asking, I was thinking about is, if you have a big show, right, if you have N viewers and influence is three deep, then N to the third is the number of connections that you make. But if you have 10 little shows, and each one is N over 10 cubed, that's a much smaller number. And so if you apply this idea of connections, it would seem to very much verify this notion of why bigger is a much more efficient thing. So first off is, do you buy that? Is that a good explanation of why big things are better than little? Don't, don't everyone jump out at once. Well, I, there was a missing piece in there. Um, it, it is, but there's the power of the connections themselves we're finding out. I mean, it was, I saw your uh, Passion Flicks uh, panel, and it was like these people watch these shows like five, six, 20 times. So it's the, with social networks, it's the power of the connections that they have. It's, it's still probably three deep, but uh, how, how much attachment do they have for those three layers might differ for sports and entertainment and other, other right, but it's still those those vectors of connections. And so, if that's true, then isn't audience targeting total total bullshit? Excuse my uh, right, isn't it? Because it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. I'm in I'm in the ad sales business, right? So we we basically try and help advertisers put the right message in front of the right person at the right time using technology and data. And for me, it's not about trying to target every single message to an individual person that perfectly aligns with that brand's needs. 
because advertising is a journey, right? They're basically telling a story. And if you're in the beginning of that story where you're just introducing something to someone and you don't even know if they like it or not or if they should, there's one way you want to engage with them. If they're already down and they know exactly who you are, there's a very different way that you want to engage with them. So I think addressability and like very fine targeting is great if you're trying to cause a certain action. You already know all these things about someone and you're trying to cause a certain action. But that doesn't get you any new consumers. It gets you existing consumers. New companies and existing companies need new consumers. But they need the viralness of those social So you got to tell a good story. And you got to tell it over a long period of time, a lot of different ways. And so it's not all or nothing. So I think it's been interesting to watch Airbnb, Casper, and all the digital first, you know, these companies that went out straight on Facebook and stuff, go to TV. And to see their numbers jump in terms of sales. So, I, you know, I think it's both. Like, I'm going to get back to that hybrid, but they, you know, in, in addition, there's a, another great example of a dealership, I mean, a, of a uh, automaker that pulled its um, ads off of television and saw a market just decline in purchases. And then well, Procter & Gamble. Uh, and they, they came back and said the same thing. So I, I think it's both. I think you're, 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 you're right in terms of, and it's what Sharita said, in terms of telling the story, you've got that, that brand reach, and then you're using your social media to sort of corral the friends his, group. His point is it's conscious and unconscious. Right. It's, the, it's, those, it's those things. I know we have like one minute to go, so I'm going to ask real quick for you guys to comment, and then are we taking questions from the audience or we're just done? All right, so go. So I just, to uh, what you were just saying, um, Part of what Airbnb and these other guys are doing now, going to television to grow their audience, they created enough buzz so they can go to television and get above that initial demographic who actually understands what Airbnb is to be able to then go interact with Airbnb. To get my mother to go to an Airbnb, to get my mother into an Uber is an act of God itself to do that. <laughs> to get my kids to do it, it's way easy. The rest of us are somewhere in between. You have to have some level of buzz before you can then start to grow those brands exponentially. Ryan, you have the Yeah, I'll just chime in. It's the, the, the approach that marketers have taken, like the Airbnbs, is the thousand raving fans philosophy. Get a thousand people to love you, not a million people to like you. Uh, and they grow their brands that way. So digital's a good way to get your first thousand people who just love what you're doing and start telling their friends and then once you hit kind of that uh, tipping point, then you can start to spend on broadcast versus the old model, which is, let's just, let me just tell all 100 million people on I Love Lucy about my, my new soap or something. And then they're going to know, and then they're going to see in the store and buy it. So it's changed the way that brands get built. Colin, any last words for us? Um, yeah. Um, connectedness is, is fundamental. And um, looking at something like Passionflix, the way that service exists is through the connectedness of, its, of, the, of, the, of the group that want that content. Um, however, at some point, that group, everybody knows. Uh, and then, well, then I don't know that connectedness beyond that would help. I want to thank you all very much. This was very interesting. I know you all had a lot more to say, and we have a limited amount of time. Um, question time, or we're done? We're pretty much done. That's a wrap. Thank you. Everybody. Go eat. Thank you.